And turn with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. One of the most famous quotes, you probably know it by heart, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, concerns the great lion Aslan, the allegorical representation of Christ. And the young girl Susan, thinking Aslan was a man, is asking the character Mr. Beaver about him. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And just like C.S. Lewis, generations of Christians have explored the notion of Christ ruling on the earth. The book of Revelation in Revelation 1-7 includes in this introductory paragraph the declaration of the coming of Christ to reign, behold, he is coming with the clouds, or in the old King James, behold, he cometh. Charles Spurgeon preached Revelation 1-7 with an insistence that the reader is to catch the zeal and the ardor with which John exclaims the coming of Christ to rule, and Spurgeon preached, just as the herald of a king prefaces his message by a trumpet blast that calls attention, so John cried, behold, It is no ordinary message that he brings and he would not have us treat his word as a commonplace saying. He throws his heart into the announcement. He proclaims it loudly. He proclaims it solemnly and he proclaims it with authority. Behold, he cometh. And that's my hope tonight. Tonight I want to try to capture some of the awe and some of the wonder and some of the zeal about the coming rule of Christ on earth. And in our mini-series on the Old Testament witnesses to the coming millennial reign of Christ, we've really just begun our survey. We've done Genesis and then Psalm 2. And tonight we'd like to consider Psalm 72. So follow along with me as I read this psalm. It is a psalm of Solomon. O king, give, O God rather, give the king your judgments and your righteousness to the king's son. May he render judgment to your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains lift up peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he give justice to the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon from generation to all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. May he also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the desert creatures kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring a present. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute. And let all kings bow down to him, all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may they give to him the gold of Sheba, and let each pray for him continually, let each bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. May its fruit wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city blossom like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let all nations be blessed in him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who alone works wondrous deeds. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are completed. Now I want to slowly get into this and I need to address a couple of interpretive issues to begin with. One of which has direct implications as to whether or not Psalm 72 speaks of the coming kingdom of Christ on earth or not. But the first little issue we just have to deal with for a moment is that the psalm begins with the superscription 
of Solomon, making it apparent that King Solomon is the author. But you just heard that the psalm ends, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are completed. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, throughout the psalms, the ascription of authorship, the, the authorship credit in the heading, the very first part at the beginning, overwhelmingly is considered to be the author. And so some theorize, and I think there's good reason for this, that David took part in writing this psalm as it was written while David was still alive. The authorship question, though, isn't really as important as the occasion. The occasion is very clear. This is a psalm of coronation for an Israelite king. This is a psalm to be read and celebrated when the king is crowned. It could apply to Solomon very clearly, But the vastness and the global implications of the psalm point to a king much greater and much loftier. So we'll say this is a psalm of Solomon, probably with the help of David. The second interpretive issue, though, more to our topic for tonight. There is a strong argument, or I'll say the strongest argument, rather, against Psalm 72 being millennial in nature comes from the amillennial argument that says that Psalm 72 is partially fulfilled in the present age as Christ reigns spiritually from heaven and partially fulfilled in the final state, which is yet to be the the final eternal state described in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, I won't take a lot of time on this, but I do want to point out some weaknesses to that interpretation because it is the primary interpretation of Psalm 72 from those who had taken amillennial stance. Here are some weaknesses. First of all, the psalm clearly portrays all the events as simultaneous. That's that's very obvious. There isn't a way to divide any of the events here. Now, it is possible to see prophetic telescoping, or some call it conflation, where you mix two events together in the Old Testament, two events pushed together as if they're one. And this does happen in Old Testament prophecy, That is most often the case with the two events being the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Those are pushed together. You you see the church age not really mentioned in between them. There are some notable passages which present these two events as one. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. And I've dealt with all of those passages in previous messages. So we, we do see that the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ are sometimes pushed together. But the attempt to telescope or conflate the current age when Christ is not on the earth and the final state when Christ is on the earth is unprecedented. And I haven't found a single example of that anywhere else in the Old Testament. So if that's the case in Psalm 72, it's the only one. Now, we've taken care of that little bit of interpretive housekeeping. Let's see what Psalm 72 reveals to us about the coming kingdom of Christ now, I want to divide our time into four topics about the millennium addressed in Psalm 72. Four topics about the millennium addressed in Psalm 72. The first topic we'll call the extent of the kingdom. The extent of the kingdom. And this is very helpful to us to understand just the vastness of the coming kingdom. Verse 2 expresses, May he render judgments to your people with righteousness. This is a prayer for the success of the king. It's a general enough prayer that it could be applied to Solomon. It could be applied to all the the Davidic kings. But most importantly, it can be applied to Christ, the coming king. But it's still general. Verse 3 stays fairly general as well. Let the mountains lift up peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. Why the mountain and the hills? Well, very often in the Old Testament, this is a, a figurative phrase For the whole land in the sense agriculturally of the land providing for God's people. May they lift up peace to the people that when the mountains are are providing and the hills are providing. It means that there is peace in the land. There's a connection between peace and abundance. What is that connection? Peace, which is the blessing of God on his people, is connected to abundant harvest. That when people are obeying, God is blessing. So peace and abundance go together. When the people are obeying, God is blessing. And this is indicative of God in covenant with his people as mediated through the righteous king. Now, so far, this could still be speaking of Solomon. It could still be speaking of a faithful king of Israel only. But now the doors of a local kingdom kind of get blown off the hinges. Verse 11. 
And let all kings bow down to him. All nations serve him. All kings bow down. All nations serve. Now, you could argue, well, this is probably still speaking of Solomon, since many kings and queens came to pay their respect to him. But verse 8 sets Solomon aside. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This never happened with Solomon. Let me give you three proofs that this is Messiah Jesus reigning over the whole world. The first proof, the phrase from sea to sea, no matter how you interpret this, some say, well, it's beginning with the Mediterranean Sea and going to every ocean. No matter how you interpret it, it means the same thing, totality of the earth. The second proof, and we'll spend a moment on this because this is a favorite topic of mine, from the river to the ends of the earth. The majority of commentators that I've read see the river as the Euphrates River. And to be certain, the Euphrates River is big in biblical history and events. But depending on what route you go, the Euphrates is between three and 500 miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the ruling center of Israel. It's, it's very difficult to see how that connects to a worldwide reign of Messiah from Jerusalem. But if we keep in mind that there are three major texts in the Old Testament concerning the time of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom that tell us something specific about Jerusalem, I think the river becomes very clear. Zechariah 14.8 indicates that living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. When is this happening? It happens at the return of Christ. From the new temple to be built in Jerusalem, Ezekiel 47, 1-8 describes in great detail a, a river proceeding from the temple. And how much detail do we get? Well, Ezekiel sees that it starts off ankle deep, and then it gets so deep you can swim in it, and it proceeds in two directions, just like Zechariah 14 says, east toward the Mediterranean and west toward the desert regions where the Dead Sea currently is. And just in case we doubt those two passages, Joel 3.18 speaks of a river coming forth from the house of God, catch this, right after the worldwide great tribulation and after the previous verse says that God now dwells in Jerusalem. So at least three places in the Old Testament by three different prophets who never met each other because they lived in three different centuries all give this description of the river. So what does this mean? From the river to the ends of the earth, you can picture the river being the center and concentric circles going outward all the way around the world. And here's a third proof that Jesus is reigning worldwide. From verse 8, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a phrase only used of the messianic king. It's never used of an earthly king in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.10, Messiah reigns to the ends of the earth. Psalm 2.8, the Son of God has given us His possession, the ends of the earth. Psalm 22.27, the ends of the earth will worship Messiah. Micah 5.4, the name of Messiah will be great to the ends of the earth. Psalm 59.13, the world will know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. This is always a messianic king. Solomon was a great king. He didn't hold a candle to Christ. So what is the extent of the kingdom of Christ on earth to the ends of the earth, the total reign of Christ? Now, I want to be fair and point out that someone might say, well, that just sounds like the glorious eternal state when we're on the new earth and God is reigning over all. And it does sound like that. But part of the final state includes Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse. So that brings us to our second topic concerning the millennium addressed in Psalm 72. I'll call this one the provision of justice. The provision of justice. And this is the point that really helps us understand that the millennium is intermediate in nature. It's a stopping point. Christ is present and yet there are numerous conditions described which are all related to the presence of sin. Not the overwhelming presence of sin such as we experience in our world today, but the presence of sin nonetheless. One of the reasons, theologically speaking, for the need of an intermediate kingdom is that God has promised a day when a righteous king will rule with justice, that both Israel and the world must have a time when the world experiences what a righteous king does. And you might say, well, can't we just talk about justice in the final state? Well, listen very carefully. 
Think about your salvation. Without the presence of sin, we would never experience God's mercy. We would never see his grace glorified. Without the presence of sin in an intermediate kingdom, Israel and the world will never see what justice and true righteous leadership looks like in the face of wickedness. They'll never see it. Keep in mind the two types of people that will be in the world at that time, the resurrected from the church age and the Old Testament saints and the mortal descendants of those who survived the great tribulation. They have not yet experienced the resurrection and perfection of their bodies. And they're still giving birth to sinners. So let's just survey what the psalm says about the provision of justice. Verse 2 May he render judgment to your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Your afflicted, literally those without property, the poor. It can even be translated the emaciated. It's a picture of total helplessness. True poverty carries with it so many burdens. There's a sense of powerlessness. There's a sense of hopelessness. And there's certainly a sense of feeling like you have no resources with which to fight injustice in your life. Why is it that the great wealthy people who are criminals can hire enough lawyers to keep them in the Bahamas instead of in jail? The the poor have no recourse. But when Messiah is king, the afflicted, the poor, the lowest will receive justice. They'll be cared for deeply and lovingly. Verse 4 adds to that thought, May he give justice to the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Now we see the two sides of justice, helping the afflicted and punishing the afflictors. Justice will be swift, it will be consistent, or to put it this way, along with the service of the resurrected saints and godly leaders all over the world in the service of Christ, instead of justice being done being the rare exception, justice being done will now be the rule. And notice that the psalmist mentions the children of the needy, The children are always the saddest victims of injustice and poverty, and yet Messiah will lovingly make certain that they're cared for. Just a side note, if you read anything about history, you see that for millennia, poverty is caused by oppressors, by those with more things or more power. Everything from slavery to government oppression to a welfare state which keeps people down to stingy employers who take advantage of And of course, the actual oppressors blame others. But in Christ's kingdom, the real oppressors will always be identified and they'll always be dealt with. In verse 9, it's one of my favorite phrases in the psalm, Messiah's enemies will lick the dust. They'll lick the dust. No more rebellions. No more wars. No more surprise attacks. How do you surprise a king who's all-knowing and all-powerful? You can't do it. Instead, the historic enemies of Israel will lick the dust. It means they'll completely humble themselves before Christ. And in verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. The needy is a different word than the afflicted in verse 2. And in the next phrase right here in verse 12, the needy has more emphasis on those who don't deserve to be needy. They're true victims, not of their own laziness or poor decisions, but they just genuinely need help. How amazing is this? He delivers the needy when he calls. I'll say this as gently as I can, but have you ever tried to get government officials to help you? Even the most well-meaning of government officials are always overwhelmed and always overworked and and they can't do everything. It's a difficult and tedious process. Even in our own city, law enforcement is overworked and understaffed. So that calling for an emergency isn't always a guarantee of help. They just can't always get there. When I was a little boy, I wrote to the President of the United States. And I asked for a picture. I remember my dad saying, well, it's a nice leather, but you're never going to see anything. I got a picture autographed by the President's aide or somebody. But if I'd been asking for relief on an unjust debt or for help with a boss who treats me like a slave or help with a landlord who won't fix the plumbing, no chance, right? 
The government is given by God to protect the innocent and help the truly oppressed, but actually getting that done, even in the best of circumstances, is extremely difficult. But in Christ's kingdom, when the needy cry for help, help comes. What a glorious thing. Why? Because the king is righteous. This is the kind of king we'll have. Verse 13, he will have compassion on the poor and needy and the lives of the needy he will save. Saying, I have compassion on the poor and needy won't be a a political platform. It won't be a point in a speech. It won't be something to just make people think he's compassionate. The king actually has compassion. He actually has love for those that he rules. Oh, and what about those who live violent lives and attempt to control others by threats and murder? Verse 14, he will redeem their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in his sight. Just a week ago, as you all know, the terrorist group Hamas, which ironically is similar to the Hebrew word for violence. In Arabic, it means warlike. They orchestrated the most violent attack on Jews since World War II, slaughtering Unarmed families in their homes, killing babies, killing toddlers, raping women. It was biblical in its violence and intensity. It was reminiscent of the Babylonian attacks on Israel so many centuries ago. In fact, the attack was so bad that the Israeli government formed an emergency government that eliminates all political differences and unites against the evil that wants to make Israel cease to exist as a nation For me personally, reading about these attacks, I've spent a good portion of my life studying God's love for Israel. And it raised an ire and an anger in me, as I'm sure it did with you. Because the land was deeded to the descendants of Abraham 4,000 years ago. It belongs to them. And Israel is still God's chosen nation. Apostate and away from Christ they may be, but she still belongs to him. But I want you to imagine if somebody tried something like that when Christ was reigning. Now, first of all, it wouldn't have have gotten to that level of success because so much of the Old Testament promises that Israel will dwell in peace. But just for the sake of argument, what would a messianic king response to that violence look like? Well, using Psalm 72, 12 through 14 as a guide, we would surmise that all in need would be immediately rescued that the guilty would be quickly hunted down and executed, and that those who died would be raised from the dead. Now, that's just an educated guess, but if blood has been shed, and from violence Christ redeems the life of the victim, resurrection is the only logical conclusion. So the provision of justice demonstrates that the millennial kingdom is a step toward the final sinless state of Revelation 21 and 22 that it can't be mistaken for it. You can't mix the two up. Dr. Matt Waymire summarizes this provision of justice. He says, Christ will reign in peace and righteousness, bringing an abundance of blessing to the entire earth, and yet the presence of sin will continue to prevail, leaving some in need of deliverance. And what justice will be available through Christ and all who reign on his behalf? the third topic addressed in psalm 72 the duties of the nations the duties of the nations we'll just make a list here the first duty total allegiance total allegiance verse 9 let the desert creatures kneel before them him and his enemies lick the dust desert creatures is not speaking of animals it's parallel to his enemies in the second half of the verse this is Speaking of the nomadic tribes on each side of the Arabian Gulf, historically very difficult to control because if you try to control them, they just move. And historically not friendly to Israel. But they're so lowered before the king that they're just called the desert creatures. They are to lick the dust. They will no longer be a threat, no longer be a nuisance, but instead be loyal and subservient to the king of all the kings. Total allegiance. Here's a second duty. Total honor. Total honor, verse 10, let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring a present. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute. Tarshish and the coastlands. Tarshish may have been Tartesis in Spain, but generally it's just a name associated with faraway places, with long voyages, far, far away. It was kind of how we would say it. The coastlands or the islands, this is a colloquialism, a popular expression that just means as far away as you can picture Someplace far away. Sheba, 
the Arabian peoples, you recall the queen of Sheba coming to honor Solomon. This is a recollection and a call for this to be repeated in the coming kingdom. And in fact, we're going to come back to Sheba in a few minutes. And then Seba, the Sabaeans who lived either in Arabia or Northeast Africa. So you get this picture of, of peoples from all over the world coming to honor the king. That is their duty. There's a third duty, total worship. Total worship. Verse 11, let all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. The kings and nations are to bow down and serve him. I want to focus on serve for a moment. This is the main Hebrew word for serving with work, for doing tasks. But it also can be used in the sense of worshiping. Worshiping with service or a service of worship. And this is the same sense we still use in our culture today, that we're in a worship, what? Service. That's the sense. Works of worship together as we gather. Now, I want you to remember something. At the top of the list among leaders of the world will be you and I. Resurrected saints of Christ reigning with him. But over time, there will be some unrighteous among the leaders. Mortal leaders, not resurrected saints. Zechariah 14, 17 through 19 provides penalties for rebellious tribes, rebellious people groups, implying these groups are being led to defy the time of annual worship in Jerusalem. But the primary order of the day is that we have an earth filled with peoples who by and large will worship Christ. There's a fourth duty, total love. Total love. Verse 15, so may he live. And may they give to him the gold of Sheba and let each pray for him continually. Let each bless him all day long. May he live. This is similar to long live the king. And in this case, it will be forever. And the people should pray for the king. They should be grateful to the king. That's what it means to bless him all day long. Now, I want to pause for a moment to remember that in the near term, Psalm 72 certainly has implications for King Solomon. And in that case, the admonition to pray for the king seems reasonable. It might be a little more difficult for us, though, to think about how do we think about praying for Jesus Christ the king? It seems odd to us. Well, in actuality, heaven itself has set this example for us already. In fact, it's a universe-wide practice. Revelation 5.13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea... And all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that is Christ, be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. That is a prayer for the king. In fact, we see more of this prayer of blessing on Christ in verse 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. May his name endure forever. In other words, literally, may the being of his name be forever. And this is another long-lived the king. And may his name increase or may his name continue. Now, this is an interesting concept here. What does this tell us? May his name continue. May his name increase. In this world, in the millennial kingdom, as generations are born... This is a prayer that may more and more and more people know Messiah. A thousand years of conversions to Christ. And I've made the case before that in every era of God's dispensations during his redemptive plan, there have been more and more people who come to faith. That in the Old Testament, a few Gentiles came to faith. We're in the church age where, where many, many are coming to faith. We can make the case that during the Great Tribulation, that Christ will return when every nation on earth has heard the gospel. The crescendo is clear. And during the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of little sinners being born to the mortals on earth and countless millions getting saved. More and more grace. May his name increase. There's a fourth topic addressed in Psalm 72 related to the kingdom, the blessings on citizens. The blessings on citizens. Verse 7, May the righteous flourish in his days in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And we see the same sort of blessing back in verse 6. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. But I want to focus on may the righteous flourish in his days. Finally, 
finally a world in which true believers can thrive and flourish in the world system. Right now, what do we have to do as Christians? What do we have to do? Well, we pray for our leaders, not out of love or worship, certainly, but out of sheer duty. And you know why we pray for our leaders? 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1, tells us why. First of all, then, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Here's the why. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, we pray for our leaders so that we can stay out of their way. So that we can fly under the radar, as it were, at a low altitude and just live our lives. And we follow Paul's admonition in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. Why? Because we live in a hostile world. If you don't believe we live in a hostile world, why don't you go down White Lane and start running down the, the street screaming, Jesus is Lord, worship him now. People are going to close their windows. They're going to go, oh, just another weirdo here. What are we going to do with him? You do that in the millennium, everybody's going to come running out the door shouting amen. We live in a hostile world, but now, oh, in the millennium, the righteous will flourish, will enjoy an abundance of peace. How long? Until the moon is no more. In other words, unending peace. And we'll have this abundance of fruitfulness. Verse 16, may there be an abundance of grain In the earth on top of the mountains, may its fruit wave like the cedars of Lebanon and may those from the city blossom like vegetation of the earth. First, you have this picture of agricultural and economic fruitfulness. But then, may those from the city blossom. This is an abundance of fruitfulness of people. What does this mean? Super population explosion. The original mandate of God to be fruitful and multiply, being fulfilled. Babies everywhere. Oh, and now we have a a callback. We have a reference to the ancient covenant that God made with Abraham. God promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. Second half of verse 17, let all nations be blessed in him. Let all nations call him blessed. And now with the reign of Christ, quite literally, every single nation on earth is blessed by God as they submit to him. And then the psalm finishes with this larger blessing upon God, ending both this psalm and book two of the five books of the psalms, officially ending the section called the prayers of David. Verse 18, blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who alone works wondrous deeds, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are completed. And by the way, what you have here is the connecting point of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. The whole earth filled with the glory of God, Abrahamic covenant, by means of a king descended from David, the Davidic covenant. What a glorious psalm pointing clearly to the future of this world under the righteous rule of Messiah. I said we would come back to Sheba, one of the peoples designated to give honor to the Messiah king. I've mentioned this in a couple of messages in the past few years, but for me personally, it is one of the most astounding stories of how God keeps his promises and it looks forward to the coming kingdom of how God fits the entire plan of redemption together. And as with the whole story of redemption, it ultimately ends in the millennium. I want to remind you once again, as we've done a couple of times, about the people of Sheba. And their significance. Remember in verse 10. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring a present. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute. The mention of the kings of Sheba has significance in three time periods. Going all the way back to the time of Abraham. We go to the time of Christ's first coming and looking ahead to the coming millennial kingdom. And I want to revisit this because this is, to me, this is an epic Uh, proof of God's promise-keeping nature. First, we go all the way back to the time of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God makes his covenant with Abram. God has chosen this man to be his means of effecting his redemptive plan from sin on the earth. He promises to Abram to make him into a great nation. His name will be great, and him all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
Obviously, the nation is Israel. All the families of the earth are blessed because it's through Israel that Christ comes and offers salvation to all who would believe on him. But God gets more specific about this covenant in Genesis 17. Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations and kings will come from Abraham. And what does that mean? The, the land of Israel will be given to the specific great nation, to Israel for all time. Genesis 17, 8. And later on in, in chapter 17, God promises that this great nation will come through a singular son yet to be born to Abraham. And this would be Isaac. And Isaac would be the son of blessing, the son of promise. And of course, through Isaac comes Jacob. And through Jacob comes the entire nation of Israel. Even more information is given in Genesis 22 that in the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the Apostle Paul commented on this promise in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Eventually, the mother of Isaac, Abraham's beloved Sarah, died. Genesis 25 records, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Now Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Letushim and Le'eumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanak and Abida and Eldaah. And all these were the sons of Keturah. Now, you recall this also that before Isaac was born, the chosen son, Abraham took matters into his own hands to try to speed up God's plan. And he had a son through his wife's servant. He had a son named Ishmael. What happened to Ishmael? To avoid massive family conflict, Abraham sent Ishmael and his mother away as recorded in Genesis 21. And in fact, Ishmael's genealogy is recorded later in Chapter 25, his sons are listed there as well. But I want to come back to the sons of Keturah. They were not the sons of promise. They were not the one son, Isaac, through whom the one chosen nation would come. But Abraham loved them. They were his boys. Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. And they had sons, including Sheba and Dedan and others. What did Abraham have to do to keep Isaac the sole heir of God's promises to Abraham to keep a potential war from happening between generations to come? Genesis 25, beginning in verse 5, says, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. And he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. The sons of his concubines, this likely refers to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, and Keturah was probably another servant of Sarah. That's how he knew her. Why did he send them away? They couldn't be a threat to Isaac, the promised son, the legal firstborn of Abraham's household. And so to keep the family peace, the family had to be separated. Because remember, entire nations are forming. So Abraham is literally preventing wars. So we have what really seems to be a sad family situation. God promised Abraham a son through whom would come the promised nation of Israel, through whom the world would know God. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't be patient. So they had Ishmael through Hagar. And Abraham even asked God to just make Ishmael the promised son. And then after his beloved Sarah died, Abraham married again, having six more sons through Keturah. And because Isaac was the promised child, Abraham had to send away Ishmael and the sons of Keturah. I I don't want you to miss the emotion of this. This isn't just a couple of lines in Scripture. Oh, a guy sent away seven sons never to see them again. No, this is an emotional moment. And Abraham, as any father would, and he was a father of great means, he sent them away with gifts meaning enough to provide for them for the rest of their lives, to make them wealthy men, to give them a start in life. And then he would never see them again. I I can't even fathom the emotion of being separated for the rest of my life from seven sons. And where were the sons of Keturah sent? Where did they settle? They settled in Arabia. Remember, God promised that not only would a great and chosen nation come from Abraham, but all the nations of the world will be blessed. It was always God's plan to offer salvation from sin to Gentiles, 
to those not descended specifically from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So what happened to the sent away sons of Keturah, to the people descended from the sons of Keturah? That brings us up to the time of Christ's first coming. Was there a group of people living in Arabia who had a vested interest in seeing the Messiah of Israel come as a fulfillment to God's promises to Abraham? Was there a group that was so interested in seeing Messiah that they would give him of the incredible wealth that they had inherited from their father, Abraham, and would come and worship him? There's only one group that fits this category. This was a group preached by Epiphanius of Salamis in the 4th century. And this group is spoken of in the New Testament. Matthew 2, 1 and 2, the representatives of this group are given. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Who are these men? These are the descendants of the sons of Keturah that settled in Arabia when Abraham sent them away. And and I'm not just making this up. There's good reason for this. Let me give you a few. The first reason is the term Magi. Uh, The term Magi has been used in history generally negatively from a biblical standpoint. Fortune tellers, sorcerers, magicians, the occultic arts, astrology, and so forth. But it also has been used in in a neutral sense. Speaking of someone who simply has knowledge and ability, someone who seeks spiritual wisdom. For example, in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, the faithful Jew Daniel was called chief of the Magi. Now, obviously, the term used in Matthew 2 can't be speaking of astrologers and fortune tellers, even though some have said that. They were monotheistic worshipers of the one true living God that they knew had come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And the term has been used to refer to other peoples other than the Persians or the Babylonians, which tends to be the main theory about the, the Magi, the wise men. And so the term Magi alone is open to simply faithful spiritual men seeking wisdom. It's the second reason the wise men are the sons of Keturah, descended from them rather. The testimony of the early church fathers. The testimony of the early church fathers is very clear in AD 155. And just by uh, a, a little bit of context here, that's 55 or 60 years after the book of Revelation is written. It's very early in the church. Justin Martyr wrote in his work, Dialogue with Trifo, he said nine times that the Magi were from Arabia. Around AD 208 in Carthage, North Africa, the famous Christian theologian Tertullian wrote in his famous work against Marcion that the Magi were kings from Arabia. He specifically called the East Arabia. He specifically mentions that Arabia was most notably known for and strengthened by trade in gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Tertullian was the first known teacher to write that the Magi were kings. He also asserts that at his second coming, Messiah will again receive the wealth of Arabia in times of peace and prosperity. And we do see that in scriptures. I'll show you in a moment. Around AD 96, Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. He identified the regions of the east as the country of Arabia, which is rich in frankincense and myrrh. There's a third reason, geography. The Magi are said to be from the east. The east is a very specific geographic reference in the Old Testament and the New Testament times to Arabia. Judges 6, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 25, and and others. Now for us, when we read the east in the Bible, we tend to think of Babylon and Persia and India. But those living in Israel in biblical times, going to those countries, especially if you're coming from the southern portion of Israel, such as Jerusalem, it meant partly going north. And anyone coming to the land of Israel from those countries entered from the north, across the Fertile Crescent. The Bible speaks of the Assyrians and the Babylonians as being people of the north. Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 1, Zephaniah 2, Zechariah 2. Three times in Isaiah 41 and 46, twice in 41, once in 46, Cyrus of Persia is said to be from the east, but that's not a geographical designation. In fact, the word translated east isn't the normal geographic word. It's just a word that means that way. From the rising of the sun, it's a general designation. 
Isaiah 41, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, Persia is in the north. So very clearly from Scripture, it's more accurate to say the east is the region of Arabia, which is due east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And you've already picked up on this, but I'll give you a fourth reason. These are the descendants of the sons of Keturah, the gifts of the Magi. In the ancient Near East, as early as the 5th century BC, Arabia was known as the country that specialized in spices, particularly frankincense and myrrh. Ancient historians, Herodotus and Pliny, both separately wrote that southern Arabia was the only country in the entire Near East which produced frankincense and myrrh. India might have been one exception, but everyone knew about Arabia. In fact, the ancient Greek historian Diodorus, who died just 30 years before the time of Christ, he said that the kingdom of Sheba in particular in Arabia became the wealthiest kingdom in the ancient world. The spice trade was to the ancient world what oil is today. And you think, boy, they had the oil and the spices. They kind of have everything over there, right? Diodorus rather also witnessed that Arabia had another plentiful resource, gold. He wrote this. There is also mined in Arabia the gold called fireless, which is not smelted from ores as is done among other peoples, but is dug directly from the earth. It is found in nuggets about the size of chestnuts. That you could just get a shovel and start digging for gold. The wise men, those looking for spiritual truth, were descended from the sons of Keturah. They were those who were dismissed by Abraham, and yet they're looking to a future hope, a family reunification And listen, this is hard for us to grasp because we don't have as much of a sense of family uh, as they did back then, I believe. In the long, everlasting, unforgotten family ties and connections in the ancient Near East, 500 years, 1,000 years is nothing. You still know who your family was 1,000 years ago. The sons of Keturah would know that the descendant of Isaac of Jacob, of Judah, of David, of Mary, the promised offspring who would bring all peoples would be their cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to bless all the people. And in Jesus Christ, the sons of Keturah found their family, they found their savior, and they found their king. They proved that God is faithful to his promises. Now, that brings us back to the future. Psalm 72, verse 10 The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute. Who are the kings of Sheba? Sheba was the grandson of Abraham and Keturah, settling and forming the great nation in Arabia. And so in the future, will the Arabian tribes descended from Keturah, those descended from Ishmael, will they bring him gifts, tribute, as Psalm 72.10 predicts? We've seen Sheba in Abraham's time, during the first coming of Christ in the Magi, and now what about the future time of Christ's reign on the earth? The future glory of Israel and of Israel's Messiah now reigning on the earth in the millennial kingdom is described in detail in Isaiah 60. Listen to this glorious hope. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and dense gloom the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hip. But then the text gets specific about some peoples who will be coming to worship and to give tribute to Messiah King. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and be large with joy because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and they will bear good news of the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar. They shall adorn my glorious house with beautiful glory. Let me just walk back through some of this. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian, Abraham's son through Keturah. And Ephah, Abraham's grandson, the son of Midian, son of Keturah. All those from Sheba shall come. Abraham's grandson, son of Jokshan, son of Keturah. All the flocks of Kedar, the son of Ishmael, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, 
will minister to you. And you heard me read it. What gifts will the sons of Keturah bring? Just like once upon a time, they shall bring gold and frankincense. Why no myrrh? Myrrh is associated in the New Testament with the death of Christ. Both as the anesthetic offered to him at the cross and as a spice soaking the grave clothes of Christ. But now he ever lives. No more myrrh. By the way, myrrh is never again mentioned in the Bible in association with Christ after the cross. His death is complete. He was raised from the dead. So now it's just gold and frankincense. We see that God is a redeeming God who always keeps his promises, who always saves the elect. He is a God you can trust. And he is a God who will bring you into the kingdom because he has promised every detail down to an ancient family that at this stage is 4,000 years old and he will still keep his promises to them. And if he keeps his promises to a 4,000-year-old family, how much more will he keep his promises to little old you and little old me? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what glorious eyes we've been given through Psalm 72 to see into the future. We would join with the Apostle John and simply pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. May your son return soon. May he come for us. May we be raptured even before the next Lord's day. May we yearn for him and long for him. May we be those that long for his appearing. And then after you have smitten the earth with great judgments for seven years, we long to return with our Savior and to see him set up a kingdom in which the afflicted receive justice in which we reign with him, and in which King Jesus sits upon his throne. May we give him glory before we see him, such that he would be honored when we do see him. We thank you and praise you in Christ our King's name. Amen.